We're going to read the Bible now. So as Travis said, it's Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 to 21. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power of his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you, you, sorry, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, everybody. For those those that have forgotten, there is a long-standing tradition in uh, church history of when the Bible is read uh, and an invitation is given that this is the word of the Lord, that people respond by saying, thanks be to God. Some of you did that, which is excellent. Um, But just to think about that for a moment as we come to pray, that when we heard Katie read for us tonight, it was perhaps the clearest time today, maybe in your own personal devotion time, but the clearest time that God will speak to us. And, And the response ought to be, thanks be to God, that we have a God that does speak to us and communicate. And then when we come to listen to his word, that's exactly what he's doing. I may muck it up in this sermon, that's the truth of it, so be on guard and be making sure that I'm true to what God says and we'll be praying uh, to that end now, that uh, we would be coming to God's word and submitting ourselves before it and we're thankful uh, for a God who speaks and that we might be a listening people. Would you uh, join me as we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, All thanks be to God for... You are a God who speaks true words. We pray, Lord, that you would give us ears and hearts that might listen and obey. Lord, that we might be receivers of your word but also be transformed by it. We recognise that this is a work that your spirit does. And so we'd ask, Lord, for the powerful work of your word and spirit to be at work. I do pray, Lord, that I would speak faithfully and clearly and, Lord, that you would take what is spoken and apply it to our lives And where we are to be encouraged, Lord, that you would spur us on. And where we are to be rebuked or changed in our thinking, Lord, that you would bring that correction. We ask, Lord, for you to be at work at this time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's embarrassing to admit. I don't know how you want to finish that kind of sentence. I've got a whole number of ways that... uh, I'm prone to do it, but I think that perhaps the main thing that I'm embarrassed to admit is that um, that this meant everything to me at one stage in my life. 
Now, if you don't know, if you don't know what that is, um, let me tell you that the very first concert that I went to, and I was excited to go there, I wasn't dragged there, I was willing to go there. I got free tickets, which was even better. I knew all of the lyrics, I owned the vinyl. It was to, uh, it was around 1990, something like that. Uh, it was to Phil Collins' Galloping Horses Tour. Blew my mind. Um, and if you want to know what he listens to, uh, what he sounds like, that's actually a different song from the one I just played a moment ago. That's a different song too. So is this. And they all sound pretty much the same, right? And actually, that's the thing uh, that Phil Collins is pretty much famous for and the thing that's perhaps somewhat embarrassing about him, not the most embarrassing thing. But um, look, it is embarrassing, isn't it? If you don't know what he looks like, that's what he looked like then. Um, middle of the road, um, middle-aged, balding, not that that's the problem. Um, but commercial pop, synth ballads, um, just weepy, soppy love songs all after the breakup of some relationship or another, constantly whinging, uh, very, very predictable. You know, you've got to listen for a few bars before you can even recognise what the song is. But I knew every song and I knew every lyric. I was uh, a Phil Collins fan um, and it is embarrassing to admit it. And for a long time, it's been very embarrassing. I've, I've learned of late uh, that actually he's actually increasing in popularity. Um, good, I, well, <laughs> good to know. And, um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy for the return of Phil Collins, but for a long time, it's been something that I've not wanted to admit to. Uh, when people ask me, you know, the kind of music that I listened to when I was growing up, I'd say, oh, you too, and Chisels, and there was Sting and Van Morrison and Phil Collins. You know, you'd never say, you'd never say Phil Collins out loud as one of your musical influences. But I was a big fan. Um, and, um, and look, I suspect we've all got stuff that's like that, stuff that we got into and, and, and loved and Saw something wonderful about it for a time, for a season, but really, um, just a little bit embarrassed about it now. And I wonder if, if it's got like that for you with the church. I mean, for a time and in certain spaces, it's fine, but it's a little bit embarrassing to admit that you're part of a church. Um, perhaps for a whole lot of reasons, perhaps because of, perhaps because of the uh, view of our culture around us and the way in which uh, it views church, perhaps after a royal commission inst- inst- into institutional abuse, perhaps after the same-sex marriage debate or the responses to domestic violence, perhaps, perhaps because of a whole range of reasons, you're a bit embarrassed about, well, Christianity and more particularly the church. And, and so as we come to think about that, I wonder how you think. I mean, in previous times, maybe even in your own life, um, but maybe in previous generations, the church enjoyed far more support than it does now. It's not the case in the culture that we live in that it's held like that. Which is an interesting thing to think about. Recent research into the way that Australians view Christianity in the church is actually quite interesting. And um, sorry, I've got to keep bending down to do this. But um, through this series that we're beginning on, this idea of being uh, called out, it's interesting to think about not only how, does, uh, how do we perceive the church and the way that the God views the church and what it's about, but also to see the way that uh, the people around us do. In um, follow-up research to the last census that was done, the McCrindle uh, group did a whole lot of research and, um, and discovered something interesting about um, 
the way that people who uh, the way that Australians know Christians. So this um, stat's interesting. That one point uh, five million Australian adults don't know any Christians. About eight percent. That's a staggering statistic. Um, but on the flip of that side, that means that ninety two percent of Australians do. And of that, uh, 46%, that top bar, know somewhere between 11 to 20 plus people who are Christians. Uh, A large uh, group of Australians actually know someone who's a Christian. Then when they asked those people who responded that they knew someone, that 92%, what they thought of Christians, when they asked them what they thought of the church, there was significantly negative views around the church for a lot of them. Some were kind of nice-ish, but some quite negative. But when they were asked of the Christians that you know, What do you think of them? Responses were really interesting. But of those 92%, when they were given a choice, the the top responders, the top five responders, were caring, loving, kind, honest and faithful. They could have chosen things like opinionated and hypocritical. They did choose those, significant numbers of them as well. But by the, the greatest percentages are actually very positive things about the way in which people who know Christians, not Christians themselves, view people who go to church or who are Christians really positively quite affirming, and I think often we don't view the church perhaps as favourably as others do. Perhaps we're quite embarrassed by it, or there's an apathy or a disdain or a disconnectedness. And we want to say over the next few weeks that the church deserves far more than that. And in fact, Jesus demands more than a half-hearted, apathetic and perhaps faithless attitude from his people towards the gathering of his people. How are you feeling about the church? Joshua Harris, who's a pastor and author, he wrote a book several years ago where he made the statement that we're not into commitment today. We only want to date the church. And you just think about the difference between commitment and dating and what that looks like. You might be very committed in your dating relationship or relationships, but that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's not a sold-out, committed relationship. He made the case for the prevailing attitude to the church that was more like dating than the kind of commitment that Jesus and the New Testament anticipates for followers from Jesus. The title of that book is Stop Dating the Church, and the subtitle, Fall in Love with the Family of God. And that's a great challenge. In fact, it's not a bad summary for what I want us to be thinking about tonight, as we consider why the church exists and our place in it. Kieran and I, over the next uh, four weeks, are embarking on a membership series, has been stated, and we want to be understanding what it means to be Christ's church here, this local expression of his body. Narrabeen Baptist Church on the northern beaches of Sydney in the year 2018, what does it mean for us to be his people in this place? Why does it exist? The, The first thing, actually, to say about why the church exists, it's because God wants it to. That that is to say, it's his idea. People didn't think this idea up. It wasn't that the early followers of Jesus thought, well, I'm following Jesus, and now wouldn't it be good to kind of get together? Rather, God actually intended always that those who came to place their trust in Jesus would gather. He's purposed to call out a people for himself and that those called out ones would collectively gather. As Travis hinted at before, the New Testament word that gets most often used about the church is the word ecclesia. It's made up of two Greek words, one meaning out, ek, one kaleo means called. A calling out, a calling out. (laughs) Flip it around. 
That, that, that is that there's a, a mass of humanity and God has reached out and of those that have responded in faith to his son, he has drawn them to himself. He's called them out. And that it'd be distinct and different. In 1 Peter, we'll talk about being like aliens and strangers throughout the world in which you kind of sojourn. The called out ones. It's a great way to think about the church. Those that gather, the ecclesia. But it's also a helpful title, I think, for us at this time. Because perhaps we need to be called out on our attitudes towards the church. I also want you to see, as we come to look at Ephesians, and Ephesians is largely going to guide us tonight as we think about what the church is about, I want you to see that this calling out that gathers us together is a direct result of the gospel, of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. If you've got your Bibles, turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. And in verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul starts to pour forth praise. He just seems to be kind of uncontainable in his joy at what God has done for us in Jesus, how much he has blessed us. In fact, blessed us with every blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. He's withheld nothing from us. In fact, this is the God who's chosen us. We've been predestined. And notice in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has freely given to us in the one that he loves. He's saying this God has actually chosen beforehand, before history passed, to actually adopt you. The father brings home the child and now lavishes them as if they are the firstborn heir to receive all things, an adoption into sonship. What an incredible reversal of fortune has taken place. But how are we deserving of that? Because Paul knows himself to be a great sinner and every other human being to be just like him. And so there's a great debt that would keep him separated from God. But actually God has lavished his grace upon Paul and us. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We got what we don't deserve We got forgiveness. It came through the redemption, the one who paid the price for the debt that we have. And we recognise that the redemption cost was very costly indeed. The blood of the perfect sacrifice of his son, that Christ died for us, that we might be brought back into this relationship. He has lavished this on us and he's done it with wisdom and with understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. This is God's action, his great good news that he would reach out to you in all of your sin and all of your rebellion and all of your wanting to live it your own way. While you were still a sinner, he reached out with his love through the death of his son that you might know him and be redeemed. It's incredible what he has done. Look on to verse 11. In him we were also chosen. Having, pre, being pre, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in the conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first fruits to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Paul saying he did all of this so that we wouldn't be far off, but in fact our lives might be for his glory, that we might bring praise for his glory. And not only just for Paul and the original disciples, 
He says to the church in Ephesus, verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What's he saying? Oh, he called us and he lavished his love upon us and he set his spirit in us, but not only in us, in you. And he called all of us collectively to be for the praise of his glory. That the church, the gathering, the called out ones, the ones who have been loved by God like this are for the praise of his glory. See, a true understanding of that, of what it is that we've received, that redemption being paid, is meant to change us. And it does change us, doesn't it? It gives us a passion for God, a desire to please him. That's not to say, though, that those that are his children will be perfect. Because sin and disobedience and the pursuit of our own selfishness and sinful desires, they are persistent, aren't they? But every true child of God will be trained and will be disciplined and will be led by the Lord. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 is talking about. That one of the markers of being a true child of God is actually that he's disciplining those that he loves. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but afterwards it produces a harvest of righteousness. It, it changes us. It makes us more and more like the one that we are following. That those who have been called out are reflecting the nature of the one who has called them out. See, God wants us to be what we are, reflecting the one who has saved us. And that God has saved us ultimately for his glory. In, verse, uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, verse 12, verse 14, the repeating phrase that we exist and that we might be for the praise of his glory. Lives that reflect that. That there's a passion for God and it's seen in our lives in various ways because there's so many different ways that that's expressed within the body of Christ. But it will be evident when Ephesians wants to go on and keep unpacking that, it does that in many ways, showing the passion that the followers of Christ have. When you get towards the end of the book of Ephesians, there's a picture of that passion and love for the church. It's illustrated there in chapter 5 when we find the church called the Bride of Christ. In that chapter, we're given a look at how Jesus Christ, there pictured as the bridegroom, how he feels about his church described there as the bride. Paul says in verse 32 that all that he's been discussing, which looks like it's a conversation about husbands and wives, is actually a great mystery because it's all about Christ and his church. And that as you think about a husband and a wife and the sacrificial love that's to exist, it's actually a foreshadowing or it's a glimmer. It's just a shadow of actually the love that God has for us, reflected between the bridegroom and the bride, the true groom, Jesus, and the true bride, his church. So it's worth noting that God actually didn't get the inspiration for loving the church from the picture of marriage. It's the other way around, actually. He created marriage to illustrate his love for the church. In the lives of a married couple who are in love and pursuing romance and are committed to one another, 
to the exclusion of all others, the faithfulness in the bond of marriage, we catch a faint glimmer of the undying love that Christ has for those he died to save. We, his church. In that passage in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's referring to the the church wherever it is found. For all those who have come to place their faith in Christ and gathered together that universal understanding of the church, all those truly born again by faith in Christ Jesus. And we understand that Christ loves his church worldwide with a deeply committed and sacrificial love. He hung on the cross there demonstrating his love for his bride. That passion and love for his bride hasn't diminished through the years for he still calls his called out ones, his ecclesia, his gathering, his church, his bride. And he deeply loves his bride. In fact, promises to return for his bride. That raises a question perhaps for us. Do you love what he loves? If the bridegroom loves the bride, then you as the bride, do you love what the bridegroom loves? His church, in all of its vast expressions across this planet, or its very real, tangible presence that we experience here tonight. Do you love what he loves? It's always worth knowing that God God doesn't call you to love what he himself doesn't love. He loves sinful people who are lost in sin. So much so that he will not leave them as sinful people lost in their sin. Romans 5.8 tells us that, that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A demonstration of God's love. And so, do I have any excuse then for not loving the church, even though it might be a little bit embarrassing or it isn't quite as perfect as I think it ought to be or for all the reasons that we might want to dismiss or ditch on the church? No, I have no excuse for that. Because we ought to admit that we're not the most beautiful of brides. Yet we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he has called us out to be his bride. In fact, so loves he the bride that as the bridegroom, he is working to beautify us. We're not there yet. It's always the church, a work in progress. And you've probably seen bits of that progress, perhaps not enough of that, but you ought to anticipate it. And then when you think about what what God's intention for this church, this bride is, this this ought to blow your mind. It was read for us a moment ago when Katie read from Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. Because there in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3, we read of God's plan for the church and we hear that even the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms look down upon God's work through the church and they are amazed. Have a look at verse 10, chapter 3. God's intent was that now, through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. What's Paul saying? That when anything, even the rulers and the powers in the heavenly realms, angels and demons... Any human being looks upon what God is doing in his called out people, the church, they see, or are meant to see, the manifold wisdom, the totality of God's wisdom, or an aspect of his total wisdom, if you like, that he is making known. His eternal purposes are revealed within his church, purposes that he's accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord that when any look on and see the work that happens in the church, that transformation is powerful. As the power of the gospel is worked out in real lives of real people and it's seen to transform them in real ways, that they are now reconciled to God and their orientation towards God has been completely reversed and not only reconciled between themselves and God, but this disparate, strange, eclectic group of people from different race, language, tongue, are reconciling to each other that this is a mystery that was hidden for ages past but is now being displayed, broadcast, and it's revealing the wisdom of God which brings him glory. As people look upon the love that his church has for one another, they know that you are his disciples. And it's reflecting something of his character and his nature and what an amazing God he is to be glorified. And you say, didn't God have other methods at his disposal than this motley crew? Than me? What a risk. Surely there was a better broadcasting system at God's disposal, but he has chosen this method. That the gathering of his people make visible the invisible God. That people might see. That's one of the reasons why the church, universal and local, exists. In one real sense, the church is the hope of the world. That is no small thing to be a part of, is it? Just to kind of be nonchalant about and a bit embarrassed about and a bit apathetic towards. If you shift across from that metaphor of the bride of Christ and you think about the other metaphors, these are in Ephesians as well and there are many throughout the New Testament, just to reflect on two more. Ephesians will also talk about the gathering of God's people being like a body. We've talked about this at Narrabeen a number of times in the past. Spent a whole year actually unpacking this idea of being the body of Christ and every supporting ligament working together. But it is an amazing picture. If you flick back to Ephesians chapter 1 and hear it spoken of there in verse 22. Ephesians 1 and 22. 
You read this, and God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Christ as the head, the one that directs and determines where the body goes, how it operates and functions. He is the one to whom we look and we, his body. The expression with all of its diversity, the eye, the ear, the toe, the ligament, whatever it might be. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Romans and other places will unpack the diversity of that body and the interconnectedness of it. But that he has chosen the church to be seen as his body. So close is the church to God's heart that we might follow his head, Christ, and represent him in that way. That the true church is the physical manifestation of Jesus Christ on the earth. And you ought to dwell on that for a moment. Because all of a sudden that universal nature of the church becomes very concrete when you want to think about a body that is assembled. It's not fragmented and dismembered. But that this gathering that God calls together at any one time and place is his body. With all of its diversity but all of its gifts and all of its experiences coming together to form this expression, that it matters that you're part of that body. You might feel yourself to be very, inex- uh, very unimportant. You might think yourself to be very important. God's likely to humble you. But part of that whole that's come together. And see, so you only know of that connectedness when you're in relationship with one another, that you might know that one part of the body is grieving or one part is rejoicing that you might join with that. And if it's just this abstract universal church, there's no sense of that. But know that not only are you the bride of Christ, you are also his body that's physically manifesting him to the world. A lot more could be said about that, but there's another image I want you just to think about and... um, If you were with us last Sunday during the morning, we thought about this a bit when we went to 1 Peter, that the church is also described as the temple or a building. It does this in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. It's a magnificent temple that God is building, but it's a structure that's unlike any other structure that you've ever seen. Anywhere else that you've visited and you've thought, well, that's, that's a fantastic piece of architecture for all these various reasons. This piece of architecture is very, very different for it's not made with human hands, not with bricks, not with stones, but people. It's what Stephen was talking about a moment ago, that for him the church is never a building, it's the, it's the people. And of course that's the, the way to always understand it. This is just an ecclesiastical rain shelter, it's helpful for that reason. It allows us to gather together, stay dry. But the church, it's made up of living stones, 1 Peter 2.5. But listen to what it sounds like in Ephesians 2.19. Ephesians 2.19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God now lives by his spirit. 
As believers, we are joined with all the saints of God into an, in, into an awesome spiritual structure. That, that God in the past has dwelt in physical structures. Think of the tabernacle. It moves around, but it's got a form. But it wasn't permanent. And then Solomon builds a temple. It's very permanent. And God comes and dwells in the Holy of Holies. But the temple's destroyed and God leaves that place. And where will God now form a, find a dwelling? A temple in us. His Holy Spirit takes up residence within the believer. These living stones that come together to form this household with a chief cornerstone that guides us all. See, think about that. What it is to know that you are part of the temple, the place where God dwells now and reigns presently. See, why does a church exist? Well, for those reasons and others. But, but what's our place in this church? And this is what we're going to be exploring more over the next three weeks. But for now, I just want you to consider this. You're called out to gather. Is that important to you? I want to suggest that the more that you mature as a believer, the more you're going to realise how much you can't make it on your own. If the last 12 months has taught me anything, and the last six months in particular, it's that truth. That there is something about knowing God, unseen to me, to be with me and never leaving me or forsaking me. And there's something that adds to that when brothers and sisters in Christ come alongside and nurture and pray and support and are that blessing to me. The idea of a personal relationship that excludes other people, that I've got this thing between me and God and I actually don't need the church. It only is an encumbrance to me. And it excludes all the brothers and sisters. That idea, if that's something that's attractive to you, I want you to know that it is a foreign concept to Jesus. And it's a foreign concept to the New Testament scriptures. You've been adopted, as we thought about a moment ago, into God's family. See, suppose for a moment that you actually are an orphan. And you're there in the orphanage and you've never known parents. And then one day, parents come to the orphanage and they settle upon you and they choose you. The paperwork is filled out, the court documents, all of those things, and you're in the car and now you arrive back. And this is now going to be home. You've got new parents. Everything about your life has changed. You're no longer part of this other thing, the kind of defined, but, but now you've been brought, chosen by love into this family and you've got these new parents. That's a wonderful blessing to know that kind of love that's being extended to you. And only then you walk around and you notice that it's not just their room and your room. There's other rooms in this house. And then you're introduced to siblings. You kind of go, ugh. Not really up for that. Brothers and sisters. And then they tell you not only are there brothers and sisters, there's actually some cousins and there's some other extended family that you need to know and you're part of something much bigger and much longer and much goes much, much further and you've got all of this history that you are now a part of. And you go, oh, well, I just wanted, just wanted the parents. I just wanted a dad and a mum. I don't want any of that. Thanks very much. And, and yet to think that would be to rob yourself See, we're meant to see that the siblings are a good thing. 
because God uses, uses others to dispense much of his grace to us. He's created us as a body with all of that diversity that we might be to one another what we lack in ourselves. He's interested in us collectively. One passage that hits that home really hard is in Hebrews chapter 10. I preached on this before, and you may remember it, with five lettuces that were at the front. It was the green salad of Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews goes through and says, let us, let us, let us, let us, let us. Five times, there's things that we collectively ought to do. He's not talking about the vegetable. He's talking about the gathering. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance of faith. That faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. It recognises that you do not do this faith in Jesus thing on your own. It's an us thing. Let us do this. And notice in the middle of that, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And maybe you've found times in your life, I suspect tonight's not one of them because you're here, where it's become a bit of a habit. One week became four and then it was a month and then it was a few months. and Well, it just became a bit of a habit not to gather. But let us not. In fact, let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching when the bridegroom will return for his bride. Let us be the bride. And you do that, together, to do that collectively. And when you're not part of that, that absence, it doesn't just impact you and your faith. It impacts all of us. We're all less for the part that you would have contributed. It also helps us because it helps us see ourselves rightly. We need to see that we truly need others and that we're not neglecting gathering together so that we can receive from God what he has to give to us from each other because we can become incredibly blind to our own failings to the sin in our own lives. And so we need others. And God's designed his body to fulfill that need. Charles Spurgeon on this topic. I believe that every Christian ought to be joined to some visible church. That is, his pl- that is their plain duty, according to the scriptures. God's people are not dogs, else they might go about one by one. But they are sheep. And therefore, they should be in flocks. It's good logic. He goes on to say this. Now, I know there are some who say, well, look, I have hope and I have given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to any church because, well, now why not? Asks Spurgeon. Because I can be a Christian without it. Well, suppose everybody did the same. Suppose all Christians in the world said, I shall not join the church. Why? There would be no visible church. There would be no ordinances. That would be a very bad thing. You believe that if you were to do an act which has a tendency to destroy the visible church of God, you would be as good a Christian as if you did your best to build up that church? 
I don't believe it, sir. And nor do you either. Sheep in flocks. We're not dogs. So if Jesus loves the church, and you and I profess as believers to love him, he calls on us to love his church. Christ continues to love us despite the fact that we're not yet perfect. And when you think about it, if anyone ever had a right to give up on the ecclesia, on the bride, to be disillusioned and to give up on the promised marriage, it would be Christ, wouldn't it? He has the most reason. We've been the most faltering of brides, but he never has. And he never will. It will prevail to the end of time. And here's an incredible thing. According to Ephesians 5, verses 26 and 27, Christ is at work every day making us, his bride, more and more beautiful in anticipation of that final day when we will be presented to him. You ought to hold out some hope for the church. Christ does. John Stott. On earth she is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and persecuted. But one day she will be seen for what she is. Nothing less than the bride of Christ, free from spots, wrinkles or any other disfigurement. Holy and without blemish, beautiful and glorious. It is to this constructive end that Christ has been working and is continuing to work. The bride does not make herself presentable. It is the bridegroom who labours to beautify her in order to present her to himself. That is a wonderful thought. And it's true. And you wouldn't want to not be a part of that, would you? You'd you'd want to commit yourself to that, wouldn't you? You'd want to be a part of that and to see that passed on to another generation as was passed on to you. So do you love what Jesus loves? Or are you dating the church? Spurgeon makes mention that were you to make the decision like that person to do without the church, then the church would not exist and nor would the ordinances. When he talks about the ordinances, he's talking about the things that are meant to happen when the gathering gathers. Things like baptism and church discipline and gathering around the word and communion. A time when the family gathers round a table and shares a meal. And Travis is going to come now and lead us as a family as we dine together and share this supper. A supper that speaks of a wedding banquet that will one day come when the bride and the bridegroom are reunited.